0: How did we get here? Have you ever asked that question? Perhaps you've been out for a walk and you've not really been paying attention to the path that you've trodden, the turns that you've taken. And all of a sudden you arrive for ill or for good and you don't really remember how you got there. And you ask the question, how did I get here? That might be the first question in terms of retracing your steps to find your way home. It might be the question that you ask because this is somewhere that you might wanna bring someone else back. But in life, we will often ask that question. How how did we end up here? Especially when we're experiencing struggles, hardships. How did we end up here? What decisions were made? What actions were taken? We are people hardwired to want to mull over and to consider what it was that led us to the place that we're in. Well, we are in, still, the Book of Acts. We've got a couple of weeks left looking at this story of the early church, which in many senses has transformed into the story of the Apostle Paul. If you cast your minds back to last week, we had Rodri with us, Rodri preaching, from Acts chapter 24, and Paul's um, defence, Paul's um, trial before the governor. And Rodri really helpfully drew out a number of Ps for us to think about how someone could, in the midst of opposition, stand up and declare God's goodness. Do you remember Rodri reminding us about how Paul was someone who knew the presence of God? Just days before, Luke recorded, didn't he, that the Lord stood, stood beside Paul and reassured him, you will bear witness to me in Rome. That Paul was galvanised by the presence of God, that tangible presence and experience of having God close to him. More than that, Paul was someone who, when he spoke, depended on the, the power of God. It reminded me of Luke's Gospel when Jesus is promising the Spirit to his followers. He said, the Spirit will take you to places and when people oppose you, he will give you the words to say. How could Paul stand up before his accusers, these highly skilled, highly trained folk? Because the power of God was in him. And then Rodri, towards the end, commented about how Paul turned out to be a person of persistence. Persistence. Persistence because that day had arrived, that wonderful day. You can you can sort of imagine it, you can sort of put yourself in his shoes. This is it, decision day. Being rescued from Jerusalem, I've been whisked off to this governor. Here they are accusing me with their lies, and now there's opportunity to de- to defend myself, to defend my gospel and my God. And nothing. Nothing happened. It says that Paul remained there under house arrest, under guard for two years. That he would be called out systematically in the hope that he might try and bribe the governor to receive his freedom. Paul was a person of persistence. I think in our lives we can imagine being extremely frustrated with that. We've considered over the last couple of weeks how God makes a promise to us. God's will is revealed to us in some form in some fashion, in some way, specifically, or, or, or the will revealed to us in his word. And we think to ourselves, "Well, oh God, where is that will? How is this will being done? How is this will coming to fruition on earth as it is in heaven? Can you imagine Paul so galvanised, with God standing next to him, drawing close and saying, you will bear witness to my goodness in Rome. And then for two years no progress. Paul might ask the question, how did I end up here? Well, actually, it's the question that's going to be asked of Paul, because the story does continue. Acts chapter 24 gives way to Acts chapter 25 and Acts chapter 26, and it's the story of Paul again being given the opportunity to defend himself or what we'll actually look at from Acts chapter 26 this morning, more rightly, to describe from his perspective how he's ended up where he is. Because Felix, the governor who had kept Paul uh, in prison under guard for two years, finished his term, was over, he was recalled back to Rome, and in his place a chap called Festus was introduced. Now, Festus, coming and taking over jurisdiction in uh, Judea, in Israel, made um, a point to go down to Jerusalem early on from Caesarea and to get acquainted with the chief priests, the Jewish leaders uh, down there. And one of the things that happened straight away, and this is remarkable when you think about it, verse 3 of chapter 25 says this, Those Jewish leaders... Um, Those chief priests, they came to him and they presented their charges against Paul. They requested, as a favour to them, to have Paul brought back to Jerusalem, for they were still, after two years of this man not coming anywhere near them, preparing to ambush and kill him along the way. That was their plan before he got whisked away from Jerusalem, taken to Caesarea. It's still their plan now, to rid the world of Paul, to rid the world of his message, to rid the world of the the fire, the flame of the gospel that is spreading through him, through the churches, through the Gentiles, and even through the Jews. But Festus, with no idea that they have this plot to kill, just seems to think that it's more reasonable that they make the journey back to Caesarea with him to present their case and that he would oversee it, that he would find out whether there was a reason why this man indeed was in in prison, in jail, whether there was any charge to bring up against him and any sentence to be carried out. So this is what happens. Only when Paul is before Festus, this time... um, they're the same charges, in essence. Um, but Paul appeals to Caesar. Festus makes the suggestion that Paul might want to go back to Jerusalem and just have this seen too, a, a religious issue, a question of the law in, in, in the courts of that law, not under, you know, civic Roman law and what have you. Paul says, this is nothing that I am guilty of. There's nothing that I've done that deserves death. In a sense, Paul can see through all the muddle and he knows that if he gets whisked back to Jerusalem, that he'll be tried, convicted, sentenced, killed, whatever it is. And in that sense, the name of Jesus and the good news will become judged guilty. Paul appeals to Caesar. And what transpires then is that uh, a new king has arrived as well in this area, King Agrippa II. They come down to pay their respects to the new Roman governor, and the Roman governor, Festus, is sort of confused. He's wondering what it is, why it is that he's got Paul here. Paul has requested to be sent to Rome to have his case heard before Caesar, but he doesn't really know on what basis, on what grounds, he's sending him to the emperor. So they come up with this idea that before Agrippa, and Festus, Paul would come in, and he'd be given this opportunity to to share, to explain how is it that he has ended up here? How did he get to this place? It's a great little speech then that we read from Paul in Acts chapter twenty six. And as we make our way through it, I think you'll see that Paul is describing his entire life, all of the twists, all of the turns, All of the nooks and the crannies he's gone down in order to arrive in this place. So let's read together Acts chapter 26. And I'm actually going to pick it up in verse 2. This is what Paul says in his defence. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and then also in Jerusalem. They've known me for a long time and they can testify, if they're willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now, it is because of my hope in what God promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that I've had since childhood that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That is what I did. In Jerusalem, on the authority of chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. And it was on one of these journeys. I was going to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. And It was about noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road that I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the gods. So I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appointed you as a servant. And as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa. I was not disobedient to that vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That's why some of the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here. And I testify to small and to great alike, I am seeing nothing more, nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Paul. How is it that you've arrived where you are? How have you got to this place? Paul answers by describing his entire life. Describing three distinct stages of his life and the fruit that they bore. Did you notice it? I tried to help you by keeping my hand up. That he begins by describing his life being a Hebrew amongst Hebrews. Verse 4, he says, the Jewish people, they all know. They all know the way I lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country, and then later in Jerusalem, and to the great tutelage of top, top rabbis. They've known me for a long time, and they can testify if they are willing, that I conform not just to the law as a Jew, but to the strictest sect. I lived life as a Pharisee. When he's describing it in his letter to the Philippian church, this is how he puts it, doesn't he? Speaking about the confidence that he could have in his own flesh. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm of the Hebrew, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, and in regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. And that life led him places. That life gave Paul certain respect, certain status, it gave him her name. It's interesting, isn't it, in, in verse 4, how he says, look, these people, they know me. Not just as Paul the Apostle, whom they've arrested and now they want to see charged, they, they've they known me since day dot. Because I epitomised everything that they wanted me, that they thought we should be. I have lived life in such a way, I have pursued holiness and godliness and Jewishness in such a way that everybody knew my name. Everybody knew exactly who I was. The first life of Paul was to be this Hebrew of Hebrews and to be fair to him, it brought him status. It brought him respect. But that wasn't the end of the story. That wasn't the final twist or the turn. That wasn't, perhaps in his own appetite, enough for him to simply to be known. I wonder whether for us to be known that is ever enough. To have a certain title, to to reach a certain landmark in our popularity. Is that ever enough? Or do we always want that little bit more? Well, Paul says it wasn't enough. Or at least it worked itself out in his life like this, didn't it? His second life. The first as this Hebrew amongst Hebrews. His second life as this persecutor of those who would dare step out of line. In verse 9, it says, I too, just like these who are accusing me now, I too was convinced that I ought to do All that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what I did in Jerusalem. I took it a step further than just being this hardline Pharisee, this strict, this deeply religious and pious and, and holy person. I did whatever was possible to oppose the name of Jesus. And on the authority of chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. When they were put to death, I cast my vote in that direction. I would go from one synagogue to the other, making sure that they were punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme, to to manipulate the situation that we had grounds to punish them and to kill them. I even went hunting them from city to city. Paul's first life, Hebrew of Hebrews, his second life as this zealous persecutor, opposing the truth about Jesus. It was a life that led him to power. Did you notice that, how he described that? In his first life as a Hebrew of Hebrews, he had status, he had respect. In this life, he had power. I would go around and I had the authority of the chief priests could lock people up. I could sentence them to death. Imagine that power to decide whether people live or die. It's the second twist, the second turn that his life had really taken, but that then wasn't the end. And the next twist and the next turn, interestingly enough, wasn't about Paul making a decision wasn't about Paul following a particular path, but it was about God breaking in. In verse 12, he, dis, he begins to speak about his own realisation. Coming to faith, his own turning to Jesus. Becoming someone who embraced Jesus rather than opposed Jesus. Who sought to promote Jesus rather than to persecute Jesus. How Jesus broke in, how light shone into his darkness, and how this voice commanded him no longer to be someone who put people to death but would lead them to life. I love how he sums it up in verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I wasn't disobedient to that vision from the heavens, to that calling that God put on me, I was obedient first in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, then all Judea, all the places I would have normally gone persecuting, now I'm going promoting, all the places I would have gone um, bringing death, I was here sharing life. I preached to them. I preached to them, Jew and Gentile alike, that they should repent, that they should turn to God, that they should demonstrate all of this by their deeds, that they should live transformed life. That is why some of these Jews have seized me. That is why they are trying to kill me. Where has it led? Where? What has it gained it? To be a Hebrew amongst Hebrew has brought respect and status. To be this great persecutor, this great opposer, has brought him power. Almost unimaginable power over other people, their lives and their death. And now... This third life of Paul as an apostle, as a disciple, as a witness to Jesus. Where has it brought him? Well, it's brought him to hardship. It's brought him to trial. It's brought him to suffering. It's brought him to prison and chains. It's brought him to the company of King Agrippa II. Now, it may not strike us immediately how... How remarkable that is. But King Agrippa II, we follow his family tree, and we will see it is not a happy family tree. For Paul to be stood here declaring the truth about Jesus, in many senses, is a really dangerous thing for him to do. This guy's great great grandfather was King Herod, the baby killer from the Nativity stories. His son was the other Herod, the next Herod who killed John the Baptist. speaking about the righteousness of God. His son, King Agrippa I, was the one who put James, the son of Zebedee, to death earlier in the book of Acts. So here's the the fourth generation of those who have sought to silence the truth about Jesus, to, to squash the hope of the Messiah out of our world. Paul has been brought here by this last life. He's a a witness, he's a disciple, he's an apostle. And it hasn't brought him respect, it hasn't brought him status, it hasn't brought him power in that same sense. It's brought him chains. What do we think about Jesus? What do we think about how turning to trust in him has shaped us or changed the direction of our lives. You hear testimonies very often, don't you, of people who are so far off the rails that Jesus quite literally, in in like the human sense of, of the word, saved their lives. Drug addicts, violent criminals, whatever it is, that without this transformation, they would long ago have died. For most of us, it's never been that severe. It's never been that obvious. We weren't on a road to an early death, to an early grave, to a life in prison, whatever it is. What do we think about Jesus and the impact that he has had in our lives? Do you know we could say, couldn't we? Fat Lord of good, Jesus has done me. Like, yes, I've got this ticket to heaven when I die. Yes, I'm not going to face judgment when that finally arrives. But what good has it done me to be a follower of Christ? I'm worse off now than I was before. The status, the respect that I might otherwise have had, disintegrated. The power that I see others wielding in this world, Christ tells me not to go near. All I have is cost, hardship. Christ calls me to love my enemies. How is, how is that good news, Jesus? The apostles encourage us to be hospitable and generous, caring for strangers and for the poor and those who are hard-pressed unopposed. It doesn't really build me up, does it? It doesn't really make a better life for me and my family. A fat load of good Jesus has done in my life. Let's read on. See how Paul viewed this change that had happened in him, this final life that he had been brought into by Jesus, with all the respect, all the status, all the power taken away and just just replaced with chains. At this point in Paul's speech, Festus interrupts his defence. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning has driven you insane. But Paul responds, Paul retorts, I am not insane. I'm not insane in the least. What I am saying is true. And it's actually very reasonable if you give it the time of day. The king, Agrippa, he's familiar with these things. I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of what I've spoken about has escaped his notice because it, it was not done in a corner. It was not done in secret. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. See, King Agrippa, actually, one of the jobs that he was given was overseeing the chief priests and the temple. He, he didn't have that Roman authority, but as the king of the area, he was given that privilege, if you like. And unlike the generations that had gone before him, he had been quite interested in Judaism and he was involved in it. Paul says, you've not missed out on any of this. The story about me, this Hebrew of Hebrews and this persecutor, you'll have heard that. The story of Jesus, you would have heard that. You know these things. What do you say about what's happening here with me? Verse 28, King Agrippa says to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Perhaps he's feeling hot under the collar. He's a little bit embarrassed that Paul is putting him on the the spot. But verse 29, this is how Paul replies. Short time or long time, this is my prayer. I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Paul, what good has Jesus been to you? Well, he says, he's been everything to me. And I want him to be everything to you. Far from being uh, a turn of events in his life, a twist that has brought him to this destination, which he now regrets, Paul says, I wish that you all had this same Jesus. I wouldn't wish chains on any of you. I wouldn't want imprisonment. I wouldn't wish the opposition that comes with it on any of you. But it's so worth it in my life. He doesn't regret it for a moment. Fat lot of good. All of this Christianity malarkey has done me. That's what we might say. Not Paul for a second. Even in this place. Even after two years of hardship and many more countless persecutions, oppositions, beatings, being left for dead, being run out of town before. And it's because, this is what we need to realise this morning, Jesus is best. That's what Paul is saying. I've had it all. Of all the lives that I have lived, this is the best one, and I want him for you as well. Some people might bring Jesus to you and say, look, here's this path to status. Some people might have come to faith in order to to look cool. I can scarcely imagine it, but, you know, I can imagine that's happened in certain contexts. And there is a status that comes with being in relationship with Jesus. We're children of the Most High God. We're beloved sons and daughters, we're citizens in his kingdom. But this is what Jesus promised those who follow after him. Not status and respect in this world, but hate, scorn and ridicule. Jesus says, of course they will hate you because they hated me first. Following Jesus is not a path to status as Paul had previously lived his life to be the poster boy of Phariseeism, of Judaism. Nor is following Jesus a path to power. Again, there's a sense in which it is, isn't it? All through the book of Acts, we've seen how God's power in their life, it's amazing. The dead raised to life, the sick healed. People we'd never expect to come to faith. Coming to faith because the spirit is in us and around us and at work. Power that we've never dreamed of before. But not power in the worldly sense. Remember Jesus says that we shouldn't yield power and authority like the world yields it. We've got to become the least. Mark chapter 10 Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers out there in the Gentile world, hold it over other people. They use their power to crush and to control and to lift themselves up and push others down. Not so with you, Jesus says. Instead, whoever wants to become greatest amongst you must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first has got to become a slave of all. Don't believe me? Even the Son of Man came not to be the Son of Man. Came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What power he had used to bring life to others. Not to crush them, not to put them down. But oh boy. Even in spite of those things, even in spite of losing respect and status and power and authority, following Jesus, says Paul, is best. Because do you know what you get with Jesus? On top of the chains, on top of the scorn, on top of the ridicule, get peace. Following Jesus is a path to hope. Walking alongside the Messiah is where joy is genuinely found. Paul had seen that, he would experienced that, and he desired it for those who were hearing this too. God has helped me to this very day. So here I stand testifying to great and small alike that the Messiah who suffered has risen from the dead has a message of light and life for all people. Jesus is the best way because it's the only way that leads to life. Whether we think in that human sense we're on a road to destruction or not, Jesus is the path that leads to life. And of course it's confusing. It's confusing to think like in Luke's Gospel when Jesus sternly, resolutely sets off to Jerusalem to think that he's going there, to be lifted up, to be glorified. But before that, he has to die and to be buried. Jesus, full of wisdom, says, my way, this way is the best way. I love this story. Go back, read over what Paul uh, wrote Uh, what Luke wrote, recording what Paul said. I love it. Ah, Because we see that the story of Jesus really is true. It transforms people utterly, top to bottom. There couldn't be a bigger difference in a man as there was in the Apostle Paul. It's a true story. This is someone who has seen it. This is someone who has experienced it. I love finding these bits in the Bible it just make me think Whenever doubts creep in, whatever questions I have, no, it's actually true. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again for me. And it's amazing for me to see that even when it feels like cost, that the story of Jesus is best. So why don't you ask the question this morning, like, how did I end up here? wherever you are in life. Perhaps you're not someone who is following Jesus. Well, how did you end up where you were? What has happened to you? What what have you done? What good, what fruit, what life has it brought about in in your existence? Paul is saying, I am saying, Jesus is saying, follow him, turn to him, trust in him, and see, not that it's easy, But it's best, perhaps you're already a believer, still ask exactly that same question. How have I ended up here? You know, it's easier when we're on the treadmill day to day of life, day to day of living and walking with Jesus. Perhaps the longer that we've done it, the easier it is just to to take the forgiveness, the reconciliation, the redemption, the renewal that he he has earned, that he has achieved, that he is working out in us for granted. And then we look out on our lives and we we see many things that we're missing out on. Paul was still a celebrity, but he was a celebrity in a real bad way. He was still a zealot, but now he was a zealot, which instead of bringing death to others was bringing death to him. But he says that it was best. Jesus' way is best. And perhaps for you this morning, or brother or sister, The thing that is most necessary is to see that even in your hardships, in your trials, in your struggles, in your suffering, how Jesus is there with us. How Jesus is is giving us the grace to continue day by day. That two years later, Paul hasn't been abandoned. God's will hasn't been undone. Paul will go to Rome. Paul will end up dying in Rome, beheaded, so tradition tells us. And yet he would say, even in those final moments, Jesus is best. I pray him for you too. Amen.